the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeed he is. They checked my ID at the door. Everything matches, and uh, the FBI hasn't caught up with me yet. So we're here (laughs) for another edition of Lifeline. How are you? Welcome. It is a Tuesday, the 14th day of July in what is continuing to turn out to be a very weird summer as we are seeing more and more of California and states like Arizona and Texas and New York and New Jersey effectively turn back the clock. It seems like it's March all over again. Of course, some of those that have been hit hardest by this are America's small businesses, small business owners are um, by a significant proportion the leading employer in America, accounting for about 54% of all U.S. jobs. And, of course, it is the small business owner that's facing some of the biggest challenges. Not to say that we haven't seen big corporations, Bed Bath & Beyond, and who else? Uh, Brooks Brothers? My goodness, i got no place to buy my suits now. (laughs) Many other retailers out there of the brick-and-mortar fashion that are suffering significantly. So we're going to spend some time today, later on in the show, with a small business expert, because he's a very successful small business entrepreneur himself, talking about some key steps, some key things that small business owners can and should be doing right now in order to protect themselves from becoming another victim of COVID-19. We'll get to that conversation a little bit later on in tonight's program. Speaking of the impact of COVID-19, one of the things that's sort of been a hallmark of this virus has been the amount of misinformation associated with it. In fact, it has been suggested by some that we are facing a epidemic of misinformation. It's not just that the idea, for example, a G5 cell phone technology somehow causes COVID-19, but we've seen in many respects the pandemic equally defined by how much we don't know as much as how much we do. And sadly, this vacuum of knowledge and information has been filled with a lot of nonsense. Now, medical experts have warned we've been living through a pandemic of misinformation, as I suggest, and in the midst of battling a global health emergency, we also find ourselves having to fend off another scourge of conspiracy theories and misinformation. challenge, of course, is how to measure exactly how much bunk is really out there. Well, Pew Research attempted to do so. They conducted a survey in um, late March, early April, found that fully 48% of Americans reported seeing at least some made-up news about the outbreak. Now, let's be clear, just because you see fake news doesn't mean you necessarily believe it. Perhaps like uh, me, you've seen plenty of bogus claims on your Facebook timeline, though I haven't begun drinking bleach as of yet, although the thought has occurred to me. So, so far, research indicates the number of people who actually believe these ideas is dependent upon the nature of the claim itself. 
But aside from social media passing along misinformation and the sense that some of the scientists are unsure about all of this, what has the media's role been in this pandemic of misinformation? Well, to gain some insights now, we turn to best-selling author and the host of the longest-running libertarian talk show in the nation, Bob Zadek. Bob, of course, is the host of the Bob Zadek Show, broadcast here locally in the San Francisco Bay Area every Sunday morning at 8 a.m. on 860 a.m. The Answer. And Robert, as always, a privilege to have you join us. Greg, it's a pleasure to be back. Thank you for having me. You know, it's always uh, problematic, certainly, when people buy into some of the nonsense that we see on social media. And half the time, I'm not sure whether or not the people that post it are doing so because they just want to have fun at somebody else's expense as a, as a character in a kidder or whether they actually believe what they post. But while that might be problematic and maybe akin to rumors that you hear over the backyard fence or at the, um, the old office water cooler when such things still existed. What is particularly troubling is this notion of mainstream media, the press, those that are supposed to do their homework, check for the veracity of a story before they go to press as being, um, if not complicit in this, um, uh, actually kind of, as some might suggest, leading the campaign of misinformation. What is your thought in particular in terms of where we're at in this juncture right now a period in the timeline that some are suggesting is either a continuance of the first wave or maybe even the beginning of a secondary wave of COVID-19. The issue, we'll get to the issue of first wave and second wave in a moment, but that's a false dichotomy, as I hope to explain, and I hope uh, you will agree with me when we get to that. But first, as to your opening question on uh, what is uh, somewhat, confusingly called mainstream media, uh, there really isn't any mainstream media anymore. They like to think they are, because somehow mainstream media is reminiscent of those people who still can remember when we had three networks, and it was Walter Cronkite or, or Smith or, uh, or Huntley and Brinkley, who were the uh, voice of authority America tuned in at 7 p.m. to the evening news, and they were told what they accepted to be the truth, and that was supported, therefore, by the newspapers, which were also part of mainstream media. That construct really doesn't exist anymore. And certainly in broadcast media, broadcast media has become simply another form of entertainment. Uh, and as and it's usually run by entertainment departments, it's dominated by entertainment-oriented people. Uh, the people who broadcast the news have to have a certain aura about them, a sort of sense of authority and glamour and all that goes with it. Uh, but uh, if, if you accept the premise, as you almost must, that news broadcasts on We'll say television, because that's the primary broadcast medium. Uh, radio isn't so important anymore for broadcasting news. TV is far more important. If you accept that as a reasonable starting point, then we're talking about mainstream media, i.e. broadcast media, i.e. television. And if you accept the premise that unless the news is, among other things, entertaining, nobody will watch it. People watch it 
to be entertained. No one watches it just for information. If we accept that premise, a totally rational, reasonable place to start, then I ask the audience to think. Uh, when you go to be entertained, whether it is uh, music or whether it is theater or the movies, whatever it is that is going to be entertaining you, and you leave the production, the entertainment production, whatever it is, you will say, wow, that was great theater or a great movie, what, or a great performance. What you're really saying is, I was made to feel happy, sad, heroic, patriotic, sad, empathic, I was made to feel something. If you walk out of a performance and you haven't felt something, you will say, without identifying why you feel that way, that wasn't very good. What you're really saying is, it didn't make you feel something. It didn't make your juices flow. Okay, what have we learned? We've learned that if you don't end up with a strong feeling, the entertainment value is diminished. Applying that to broadcast medium, what have we learned? If the news broadcast didn't make you feel something, didn't excite your emotions, not your intellect, but your emotions, if it wasn't entertaining, it didn't make you feel it was a bad news broadcast. Therefore, the only way news slash entertainment keeps eyeballs and ears is by evoking emotion, which means... To broadcast everything is fine doesn't evoke an emotion. Thus, every night when you're reported on the virus, coming now to, down to your point, Greg, when you get the nightly report on the virus, what's the first thing you're told? Number of new cases. Number of deaths. Because those evoke an emotional response. What if you were told the dollars of commerce that were transacted during the virus and there's more and more commerce being enacted every single day because the area is open to commerce. It's not locked down. If you were just given statistics on the amount of dollars exchanged hands that day, you would change the channel because there's no emotion involved. That's like what it's supposed to be. So, therefore, the media cannot tell you objective facts. It's not entertaining enough. Therefore, it's always deaths, it's always new cases, always in red. Because red evokes an emotion. Thus, mainstream media is not designed to give you information, it's designed to make you feel, and that's why we get such a distortion. It's not because people are sinister, they want your entertainment dollars, they want your eyeballs, so they gotta make you feel something. And the best thing to make you feel is nervous or scared. Because that's perfect. Sorry for the long and, answer, but I had to explain uh, as to why this is happening. Not because anybody no, is big. They are just behaving in a world of commerce. And, and I think you've done an excellent job summarizing what has become the problem in so much as there was a time 
pre-deregulation, and we're going back to the Stone Age for some, and there may be those of you listening that this is even before you were born, but in the late 1970s, early 1980s, radio stations, TV stations were required by the FCC to broadcast a certain percentile of news. It was not optional. It was not seen necessarily as a moneymaker. It was simply a requirement. And then with deregulation, there became more and more of an attempt to see news in a different fashion, not as a requirement, but rather as another money-making entity of said network or TV or radio station. And suddenly we see this paradigm shift, as you're suggesting, Bob, where it became what can we do to maximize the greatest number of earlobes and eyeballs so that greater numbers result in greater ratings, which results in greater revenues. And so now suddenly, you know, the old adage of it bleeds, it leads is not by accident. And I think you've brought some wonderful perspective to this because now we can, be getter, we can begin to better understand that part of the failure of media, big and small, um, in in providing the truth is that there's no real motivation to that if the truth doesn't equate eyeballs. You said it perfectly, Craig. If you've just joined us, we're visiting today with Bob Zadek, nationally syndicated talk show host, best-selling author. His latest book, by the way, is called Secret Sauce, the founder's original recipe for limited American democracy, now available through Bob's website at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K. Dot com. In addition to his new book, you'll also find other resources and lots of great information about his syndicated program. So check him out online, bobzadek.com. We'll take a time out. When we come back, let's dive a little deeper into this issue of not just, as Bob has explained, the reasons why media is motivated to distort, but then the impact of said distortion, particularly as it comes down to this pandemic. We'll get to that right now, though. We're going to get to traffic at 518. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Best-selling author, syndicated talk show host Bob Zadek, our guest in this segment of Lifeline. He, of course, can be heard Sunday mornings um, here in the San Francisco Bay Area on 860 AM, The Answer. And Bob always has great insights every Sunday morning at 8 o'clock. Lots of fascinating and learned guests help you dive deeper into the story behind the story and largely cut through a lot of the nonsense that has become sadly typical of many of the so-called Sunday morning talk shows. So check them out Sunday mornings, 8 o'clock, 8.60 a.m. The answer the Bob Zadek Show. Information again on the web at bobzadek.com. Robert, I want to pivot to the specifics of COVID-19 and, and certainly as you've sort of laid out the table here today, an understanding of what is generally the primary motivator of most news organizations these days, and oftentimes that's both great and small, and that is money, survival, bringing more money to the bottom line. If it bleeds, it leads. But of course, all of that can be problematic when it helps to um, educate and inform the, the general population about what's going on in the world around them, but can be downright lethal when it comes to 
lack of information and motivation to tell the truth, no matter how painful or how boring it might be when it comes to something like a global pandemic such as COVID-19. In, in the wake of all that we've, we've seen here, what, what is your sense in terms of the overall uh, impact of the information so far? Um, and are we, are we starting wave two? Are we finishing up the end of wave one? What do you think? Well, as, as I'm not answering, answering, of course, with a medical degree or an epidemiological degree, because that's not what I have, but certain, certain parts of your question can be easily answered. That uh, the concept of wave itself, if that's a construct which was, I'll say, politically invented, but here's what I mean. I don't mean anybody is dishonest or sinister. But here's what I mean. Initially, when the virus hit, the best information was there was a danger that our medical facilities would be overwhelmed and we would be confronted, like a third-world country, of not being able to care by, of our citizens, take care of our citizens. That's unspeakable. That could not be allowed to happen. So this concept of flattening the curb, curve was invented. What that meant was we want to make sure that the demand for uh, intensive care units and ventilators, etc., the demand did not exceed the supply. So we were turning people away, which would be unspeakable. Valid goal. The point is the purpose of the lockdown was not to cure the disease. Indeed, not even to, per se, limit its spread. The purpose was very specific and was to make sure facilities are not overwhelmed. The corollary is, once we have the availability of hospital beds under control, which we apparently have, once that's done, any justification for the lockdown disappears. Remember, the lockdown was not to make the disease go away. Absolutely not. Therefore, when we cure, when we got rid of the lockdown, albeit haltingly and in fits and starts, but once we sort of got rid of the lockdown, then no surprise, the, the number of new cases had to go up. Of course it did, because now people are out and about in society. But who cares? So long as the facilities are not, again, overwhelmed, and while they're getting close, there's no real fear of the facilities being overwhelmed. There's, there's increased usage, but nobody is talking about we're going to run out of facilities. Therefore, as new cases arise, which are predictable, of course it's predictable, but once new cases arise, that's not grounds to once again cause a lockdown. This is not a second wave. This is a predictable result of, of getting rid of the lockdown. Therefore, it should not even be discussed very much because it's predictable, as predictable as night follows day. Therefore, for the news to open with new cases and even increased deaths, well, once you have people out in society, more people are going to contract the disease and more people are going to die in absolute numbers. But the death rate appears to be 
lower than, pay attention, lower than normal flu deaths as a relationship between deaths and number of cases. Therefore, reporting on deaths should be good news. It should be a cause for, for relief, not a cause for fear. Therefore, this lockdown being predicated upon one number that doesn't matter, new cases, is a horrible, a horrendous governmental mistake, which maybe governments will pay for at the ballot box, maybe not. They may be able to rationalize their decision. But when you look at only at new cases and not to the benefit, there is an unbelievable benefit to all of us by letting people out and about to work. The benefit is we make money, we are happier, kids go back to school, kids do not suffer mental problems because of being locked away in the most important years of their life. And so, but never on the news, Craig, has anybody ever mentioned increased prosperity as a result of undoing the lockdown. Nobody has mentioned increased happiness. Nobody has mentioned the fact that people are no longer on unemployment. And so only reporting the predictable bad part of eliminating the lockdown and not reporting the equally predictable benefit is a gross, almost criminal distortion of the news. And that's what angers me more than anything else. And government is sucked in by this news because they are, they are such slaves to the evening news. And we are all being profoundly harmed by autocratic governors and mayors. All right, what about uh, the argument, and I, I just noticed the time, we're, we're tied on it, but what, what about the argument of the exponential increase that clearly what we've seen here is is not necessarily uh, cases that were lingering, that were exposed before we understood what COVID was, and suddenly they've now come to light. These are new cases that obviously have been uh, exposed to somebody and then they contracted COVID-19 since the last quote-unquote attempt at a lockdown. And it certainly appears as if they're going to push us back into maybe not the full extent of what we went through in March of April, but something that looks similar to it as we're seeing the governor today saying close theaters, close bars, close restaurants, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So what, what of the dynamic in terms of the long-term impact um, of having more people exposed more people sick, um, and particularly, Bob, the pressure on our already challenged health care system. Um, what of that dynamic? It's performing as it's three comments. First of all, if you want to make an investment, Craig, I would buy ankle bracelets. Because we're not very far away from the government putting everybody on ankle bracelets so the alarm <laughs> goes off when you leave your house and they can throw you there. Yeah, you're probably uh, right about that. Now, but as to your specific comment, last year we had a flu season. Why weren't there reports on new cases every single day? Why weren't there? Because nobody give a damn because it doesn't matter. Why are there reports this year? Nobody should care because there's no societal impact. A number of new cases mean people who have very mild symptoms, people who are asymptomatic asymptomatic, but they have new cases. We're reporting information that's irrelevant. If somebody is asymptomatic or simply has, um, is, has the flu for a couple of days, that qualifies, Craig, as a case 
but nobody cares about it. It's like reporting every time somebody sneezes, some number goes up. They're reporting information that will have the effect of getting people agitated, but it's an irrelevant number. It doesn't tell us anything about the world or about the county or about the state. It's just a number. And when they report it, it must be important, or they wouldn't be reporting it. And people react, and they react in a fearful way, which means they're more dependent upon government. Because when you're afraid, you want government to protect you. It's all, we're using fear to uh, allow people to cede their freedom to autocratic mayors and governors who have extraordinary power, power that King George III would have died to have but never had. Well, that power resides in Newsom and Cuomo uh, and all the executive branch officials. Bob, we appreciate the time. We're, we're out of it, unfortunately, for today. We're going to have to grab you and, and uh, be able to do this for a solid hour. Unfortunately, every every time we visit, it seems as if the clock, uh, all of a sudden, we, we have to succumb to it. But I appreciate your time. And, of course, we invite our listeners, check out the program. If you've not done it yet, you can get details on the web. Tune in Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock. Uh, here locally in the Bay Area at 860 AM, The Answer, our sister station, and you can enjoy the Bob Zadek Show. Again, details and resources along with podcasts available at bobzadek.com. That's B-O-B-Z-A-D-E-K dot com. 534, let's get you caught up on some traffic here. Head over to the KFAX Traffic Center for the latest. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. A precipitous surge in unemployment as of uh, July 9th. In fact, we've seen the four-week moving average of 19 million has certainly presented a challenge, particularly for small businesses, those with 500 or less employees, which account for a disproportionate number of not only private sector jobs, on average, about 54% of all jobs in the country are provided by, quote-unquote, small business, but they also share a disproportionate degree of vulnerability. Now, specifically today, we see that some 40% of jobs there that are less, perhaps, vulnerable because they're in major sectors, major corporations that have access to greater resources. Small businesses are a recognized proving ground, certainly for entrepreneurs, a vibrant source of innovation and competition, and an essential source of employment, as I've just shared with you. They are the suppliers and customers of the broader economy and deeply embedded in local communities. And while many businesses perhaps were vulnerable prior to the crisis, lack of capital, things of that sort, we've seen today that small businesses face a significant journey ahead. So... Is the light that we see simply that of an oncoming train at the end of the tunnel, or is there hope? And are there steps that businesses, particularly those operated by people of faith, can be taking today in order to guarantee a greater opportunity and greater likelihood of survival and thriving tomorrow? 
Well, joining me now is a bit of an expert in the field. In fact, he's not only an entrepreneur and small business owner, he is the founder and president of Mike Rovner Construction, who grew his company from just a handful of people to now employing over 300. And Mike has got a brand new book out called Supernatural Business, A Better Plan. We'll talk about that. Meanwhile, Mike, great to have you back on the show again. Hey, thanks for having me, Craig. Great, great to be with you. Boy, these are challenging times. The last time we had an opportunity to visit, things were looking good. People were encouraged, and and um, there was a lot of, I think, uh, hope on the horizon, uh, particularly for entrepreneurs and small businesses. But today, in the wake of the events of the last uh, 30 to 90 days and the challenges that we're seeing brought to bear on businesses in particular, I think of those that operate things like uh, restaurants or uh, provide uh, service sector types of jobs. They're facing a very uncertain future. And, of course, that brings us to to the core focus of this brand new book that you've just put out. But I, I want to spend a moment just talking about your your sense of looking down the horizon and seeing where we're at today, where things are headed, and just how challenging all of this COVID-19 is for small businesses. Uh, well, it's in- incredibly challenging. You know, uh, I myself have been just kind of navigating through this crisis uh, myself, and that's probably going to be one of the next uh, teachings and trainings that we have on our uh, on our website thriveteaching.org is we'll have something for uh, navigating through crisis. And that's so important today because uh, oftentimes small business owners are just sort of you know dealing with the day to day minutia of paying the bills, taking care of the employees, serving their customers, uh, let alone to think about uh, you know crisis mitigation and how to engage in a long term survival plan through something like COVID nineteen, which I think certainly um, caught all of us by surprise. Now that said, there is a different component in here. That different component is for people of faith who, unlike those who do not have faith, um, there there is sort of a, what should we call it, Mike, a secret weapon, so to speak, when it comes to success in business. And you've certainly, down through your years and growing your business from just a, a handful to over 300 employees today, have really learned to see the importance of having uh, a key member on your team, and of course, that's very God himself. Share some of the insights of what you've learned down through the years and why it's so critically important for people of faith to really entrust the future of their business to God. Well, you know, I um, great question, Craig. So I've, oper- I've operated in the natural, and I've operated in the supernatural, and the supernatural is better. See, because in the, in the natural... Uh, you have to be smarter than everybody. You have to have resources. You have to have education. You can't make mistakes because you're totally reliant on yourself. Uh, but when you operate in the supernatural, you're actually operating uh, totally dependent on God for your business. And when you do that, you will see supernatural stuff happen, even in the time of crisis. And a lot of this goes beyond just simply the the faith factor in terms of of trusting God. 
uh, and leaning on him. But there's also, I think, as as you talk about inside the new book, Supernatural Business, a very key component when it, when it comes to not just trusting, but also the day-to-day operation and using the principles that we learn from Scripture and apply to our everyday lives. Well, many of those very same principles can and should be applied to the way we do business. Absolutely. In, in, in my book, you know, which I'd love people to go out and look at at uh, thriveteaching.org, is um, it's all the stories and all the testimonies of the last 28 years, how we started with absolutely less than nothing, and all we had was the Word of God, and our pastor would teach us. You know, I was a brand-new Christian right out of jail, you know, first church I ever was at, and the pastor was teaching, uh, don't just listen to my sermons, take what I teach on Sunday and put it into practice on Monday. And that was the real key to the supernatural for us. How important has it been, do you think, in terms of your success down through the years, for there to be a a, a secondary goal in mind? And, and by that I mean so often as a, a small business owner, we open up, our goal is to be successful, right? We, we want to be able to provide for our families, serve our customers, um, have a, uh, a successful um, uh, experience with our employees, and at the end of the day, everybody makes money, they get their needs met, and we feel as if we've, uh, we've gotten the job done. But your business has had the additional component of wanting to be able to, to not only be successful and serve the clients, but also serve God simultaneously, that, that sense of, of marketplace evangelism, I'll call it. How critical do you think that's been to your success so far in having that secondary key component to the reason why you do what you do? Well, you know, it's, it, you can't, you know that, that saying, it says, uh, not everything you could quantify is important, and not everything that you can't quantify isn't extremely important. And I'd say that for us, in anybody in their business that wants to operate in the supernatural. You know, in Proverbs it says, he who wins souls is wise. And so it started with me in my business about 16 years ago where I really started getting a feeling like there was more for me to do than just try to create profit. And so, um, you know, my pastor had talked to me about it, and uh, he said, you know, maybe you're supposed to be like a spiritual leader in your company. And you know, I was, uh, Craig, I was like, well, what does that mean, right? So uh, the only thing I could uh, relate it to was my pastor, he prayed for people. So about 16 years ago, I started making lists uh, and putting them on a sheet of paper of all my employees, my clients, and my vendors. And I started praying over them on a weekly basis. And, you know, now I have thousands of people that I'm praying for every week. And so when I started doing that, uh, my business completely changed. Because what happened was I started to see the people that I work with through the eyes of Christ. And Mm. people, here's the thing is, people, you can't uh, fake uh, loving people. And when you pray for who you pray for, you will love. And I started so loving on the people that I work with from the top down. And it truly changed my business. Not only did my business become more successful, but people just started coming to know Jesus. 
And see, that's exciting because, you know, in, in business, we, we oftentimes will see ourselves perhaps as, as change agents when it comes to innovation and invention, coming up with the new widget, um, super serving our customers, what, whatever it might be is the yardstick that we use to measure success. But when you become the change agent of a different sort, and what I love about what you're saying, Mike, is not just the impact within the organization, in other words, directly with the the employees and suppliers that you come in contact with, but I imagine that's got to spill over then into the clientele that you work with, and suddenly they begin to see there's something different about the attitude of the people in this company. And, and I've got to imagine that from a from the the broader perspective of marketplace evangelism, that that's really got to be a significant game changer when it comes to impacting or 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 broadening the kind of impact that your business is able to have. Yeah, absolutely. And so you know, one of the cool things is you know a lot of my clients look at me as their pastor, and they don't call me their pastor. I mean, I have one uh, Jewish client, uh, very successful. He calls me his business rabbi and some of my clients (laughs) sometimes they'll they'll just literally Craig call me on the phone I love it I'm doing I'm working with these people putting together a a construction uh, project and one of my clients will call me on the phone and said hey I heard you pray for people and this is a guy that's incredibly successful at every level and here he's at you know he's struggling in his marriage he heard this guy uh, about this guy that prays for people he called me on the phone and I remember just praying for him that uh, Jesus would heal his marriage. And, you know, then he hung up the phone, and afterwards I was like, oh, my gosh, what about my business deal that I was trying to put together? And, and the deal ended up happening. But, you know, over the years, um, you know, I've really loved on the people I work with, and that has really been the key to the supernatural. See, people, the world is starving, starving for authenticity. And, you know, one of the things is people also, people work with people they like. It's just for sure that's the way it works. But people like people they can trust and people that care and serve them. And I would imagine that sort of reordering of priorities was we're, we're talking about here it creates kind of a, an incubator, as it were. It, it creates an environment where God is now able to freely move. And so then the supernatural experience when it comes to not just the way that you're able to impact lives, but even the way your, your business functions and succeeds becomes the real change uh, agent here, becomes the, the, the real matter in which you can discover a better plan, work that plan, and see it impact not just the success of your business, but ultimately that marketplace evangelism. Mike Rovner is with us today. Mike's got a brand new book out called Supernatural Business, A Better Plan. In fact, he's got a whole teaching series put together that every entrepreneur, every small business owner can learn from, apply, and then begin to reap the benefits from, to really create that supercharged, supernatural business that you've always dreamed of. Get information available at thriveteaching.org. That's thriveteaching.org. Let's take a time out. We'll come back to more of our visit, more insights from Mike Rovner, author of Supernatural Business, A Better Plan. Right now, though, let's see what's going on out there traffic-wise at 10 minutes away from 6 o'clock. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
Welcome back to the conversation. With us today is the founder and president of Rovner Construction, Mike Rovner. Mike is also in ministry, I might mention. He's been a pastor, uh, one of the members of the pastoral staff at the um, California-based uh, City Church down in uh, Ventura, just south of us. And he's got a brand new book out. And I, what I love about this approach that you're taking, Mike, you know, the, the old adage, no business plans to fail, but they fail to plan. And without having clear marching orders as to how one goes about engaging in that execution to, to literally supercharge your work, your business, to not only impact the benefit of your employees, your customers, but ultimately the kingdom uh, is exciting stuff. But you got to have a plan. you got to know how to work it. And that essentially is what you've done inside the pages of this new book. Walk us through a little bit, because I, I know that this is more comprehensive even than just simply a book that you read. Tell us more about it. You know, it's, uh, the book is a, a book of miracles. So basically, it's all the stories and the testimonies of the last 28 years of how when I started out in business, and I was like a little drywall repair guy, and I was doing jobs, $100 jobs and $500 jobs, and how our company grew to a you know, one of the largest construction companies in California by putting the Word of God into practice. And it's just a book of miracles, how through times how God showed me to, like, humble myself inside of some deal I was doing or in a, uh, an area where I had a difficulty with an employee, and how those things uh, spurred the supernatural of God. And so just a lot of stories. It's kind of like a cheat sheet for anybody that wants to go from where they're at to a place of supernatural in their business. One of the things that you've done, and we've talked about this before, in the creation of the Thrive Teaching Program, and folks can get more information online as well as order the book, Supernatural Business, A Better Plan, by simply going to thriveteaching.org. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E, thriveteaching.org. But one of the things that I like that you've incorporated here is not just the testimonies and the stories of success, um, but also some of the key scriptures that have really helped to kind of be a a, a guide for you, a, a pathway, so to speak, in the way that you've ordered your business related to employees, cared for employees, and intersected with your customers. Absolutely. You know, um, so many scriptures. I mean, I, I love the book of Proverbs. It's one of my favorite books in the Bible, especially for business, you know, and also then would be the book of James. But one, uh, one scripture that just comes to mind is, you know, in Proverbs 11, one, uh, in the uh, message translation, it says, uh, um, cheating, uh, God hates cheating in the marketplace. He loves it when business is done above board. And when God loves what you do, he could even make your enemies live at peace with you. Isn't that great? I love it. So good. One of the things that, that I want to have you touch on here, um, and I've kind of alluded to this, that what you're providing is not just the book that we've been discussing, Supernatural Business, but you're also endeavoring to try and equip pastors and successful business leaders to sort of replicate this formula, so to speak, and, and use these principles that are drawn right out of Scripture uh, in how to operate your, your business, on a, daily business uh, on a daily basis, take that to the next level, and engage in that marketplace evangelism that we talked about earlier to impact the community around you. You've created something called the Marketplace Manifesto. Tell us a bit about who that's targeted toward and what that that particular manifesto can help provide. 
Okay, well, great. Uh, great question, Craig. So um, at our church, my wife and I are, what are what's called the marketplace pastors. So we are uh, lay pastors, non-staff pastors, and we mentor and disciple the people in the marketplace. And I'm talking about people that are managers of a bank or managers of McDonald's to entrepreneurs to people that have bigger businesses. And my wife and I, we have a passion for business people. So we've created, like, small group curriculum, and um, uh, the book has uh, study guides and, and scripture cards geared right for business people. And so this is what we've created at thriveteaching.org. It's kind of like marketplace in a box. So if any church has a passion for people in the marketplace and people in business, this is a resource that you could just uh, open up and use. And so, um, and we've had so much success um, with people over the years where my wife and I, we've been able to personally mentor and disciple, you know, probably 50 people. And those people are also experiencing the supernatural of God. So this, this um, website and this curriculum and this teaching kind of is a way that my wife and I can personally mentor your business people at your church. And, you know, what I love about this is, listen, anybody can say, I want to sit down with Pastor and get some insights. I'm a small business owner. I want to not only learn some of the key scriptural principles that can help my business survive through these challenging COVID-19 times, as we talked about earlier, but also to thrive and to have an impact on the community around me. And some pastors may, you know, <laughs> quite appropriately say, I'll pray for you. I'm happy to share scripture with you, but you got to realize that I have never been in the marketplace. I'm, I'm here in the church. I'm a shepherd. I'm not in business per se. And so for people to have the opportunity to hear from someone like yourself in the trenches with the experience that can provide really the practical application of what this looks like played out day to day inside of a business and how it can impact again, not just what you're doing for your family, your employees, your clientele, but ultimately impact the, the greater kingdom in the community around you is, is, is so exciting. And I think the need for something like this, Mike, is more important today perhaps than ever before. You know, you, you look at what's happening in the world around us, and there's that one passage of Scripture that talks about in the end times how men's hearts will fail inside them for fear. And we're certainly in one of those junctures today when we look at wars and rumors of wars and all that's going on with the, the current pandemic. And so to be able to operate your business um, in a faith-based fashion that can provide hope for others in the process and literally be able to, as you've alluded to, reach people that otherwise might not necessarily show up to church on Sunday morning. I think that's perhaps one of the most dynamic aspects of the principles that you share inside of Supernatural Business and what's available through thriveteaching.org. I love it. Yeah, thank, thanks so much. I, I mean, one quick story. There's this, uh, I was working with this guy that was uh, started out, he was kind of like a, a project manager, and uh, he got promoted to um, a junior vice president, and then eventually to vice president of a big, huge real estate investment trust company. He came and heard me speak one time, and I just invited him. I was speaking on finances. He came to the meeting, and he lifted his hand and uh, accepted Christ. And now that guy today is in charge of over 10,000 people. So when we reach the people in the marketplace, we reach mm. every single person that they reach. And, and you said, you alluded to the fact that there's so many people 
that would never would never go inside of a church. But we could be that um, that reflection of Christ to those people. And there's just a tremendous opportunity uh, today in the marketplace. People are hungry. People are hungry for authenticity and, and true Christ, uh, Christians that reach out to them in love. And, and you'll you'll just find as you do that, people just come out of the woodworks to get born again. And it really becomes, I think, the, the, the key fulfillment of what we're supposed to be doing in, in, in where we're planted. You know, uh, oftentimes people say, well, I'm not exactly sure what kind of ministry God wants me to be in. And they think that, that ministry has to be in some sort of an official capacity, standing behind a pulpit or on the microphone of a Christian radio station or something of that sort. And that certainly can and uh, be ministry perhaps for you if that's what you've, God's called you to. But maybe God has called you to run the corner grocery store or to run the local dry cleaners and to be there to be that that beacon of hope and encouragement and light for all the people that you come in contact with on day-to-day business basis. So how do you learn to implement those principles? Well, you'll find many of Mike's insights and experiences available inside the pages of Supernatural Business a better plan, and then, as we mentioned, on a broader scale, um, the 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 study groups that really can be started inside of your own local men's fellowship at your local church uh, that can really help take a marketplace ministry to the next level. All available online through ThriveTeaching.org. That's ThriveTeaching.org. And Mike, when folks go there, particularly if they're interested in um, not only ordering the book but kind of getting involved at that deeper level, maybe starting. A, um, a group within their local church um, or maybe even within their their um, their business contacts where they can all come together, study together, pray together, and get involved in this level of marketplace ministry together. Is it clear once they get to your website where they can get that information? Yeah, absolutely. They just log on and you could uh, you could see right in the menu it has um, the curriculum, it has the book, it has... Um, uh, other resources that will have some videos and, and stuff. So there's there's just a plethora of, of resources for churches and for business people. E- really easy to navigate. And so I'm a, a real low-tech guy. So when we were creating this, I said it has to be really super simple for people like me. Yeah, make it make it user friendly that way because in the end it it's about the information and helping people to learn how to not only absorb it but ultimately apply it to change the way they do business and to literally use their business to change the community. Check it out online thriveteaching.org. That's thriveteaching.org. Mike's new book Supernatural Business a better plan also available to order online today. Go to thriveteaching.org. Mike Rovner, founder and president of Mike Rovner Construction. We appreciate the time, brother. Good to hear from you again. Yeah. All right, no, 607. You bet. You take care now. 607. Let's uh let's get caught up here on some traffic, shall we? Over at the KFAX Traffic Center.